Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. I'm just so grateful uh, for this series and for this day. So um, I'm going to begin uh, by just giving you a recap because uh, next week we end this series on Sabbath and Jubilee uh, with Pentecost Sunday um, and kind of tie it all together uh, with um, how Pentecost inspires and moves us towards Jubilee and Sabbath rest. So um, if you remember or if you were here, um, in week one, we introduced this idea that Sabbath rest is not just a day off from work or a day off from sort of secular concerns, but a day to really dream together of a world free from exploitation and suffering and irresponsible hierarchies and um, human sin. And we know this because the Sabbath year is a sort of a bigger version of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath year is a year to release uh, the enslaved. Uh, release debts, so those who are in debt or enslaved to debt, to release the land to lie fallow so that wild animals could enjoy the harvest. And then you have the Jubilee year, which is an even bigger Sabbath year, where the land is returned to ancestral stewards and wealth is redistributed to set society back into a state of shalom uh, and neighborliness. So then in week two, uh, James came uh, and gave an amazing sermon about uh, trauma and sort of looking at um, Sabbath through the lens of trauma and the idea that Sabbath rest is, is a, really a state of being at rest in your body, um, being at rest in your nervous system, free from shame, collective shame, uh, free from suffering and from memories that can hold us captive to fear. Um, Sabbath rest is really a full embodied restedness. And then on week three, um, we had Wayne and Lydia come and speak to us about addiction and recovery. And it was part of the same theme because we explored the way that um, all of us often are quite overwhelmed. Yeah. Overstimulated, overburdened with fear and anxiety. Uh, and sometimes uh, we use substances or impulsive behaviors to try to go numb and check out. And we trick ourselves into thinking that it's a break from the rat race and the chaos, but it's not. We can't use religion or spirituality or substances or impulsive behaviors uh, to avoid hard stuff. We can't. That's called spiritual bypassing. Uh, and instead, actually, our faith and our hope in Christ helps us to bravely face the hard stuff and work through it. Uh, so we then turned our focus uh, outwards. So we had three weeks kind of reflecting on, like, what is real Sabbath rest in my own body and what do I actually need rest from and, and who do I need rest for uh, and then we turned to focus outwards and talked about debt and capitalism. It was an intense sermon. I was like, I feel so uncomfortable, but it's what the Bible says. Uh, and we identified the way our economic reality really forces us to constantly serve mammon so that we barely have any time or money or energy left to consider our neighbor, to consider the common good, to consider a new way of, uh, of, of living on the land. Uh, we, we explored how mammon forces us to participate in systems of greed that are really destroying the earth, destroying our neighborhoods and destroying our own bodies. And so finally, last week, Michelle focused on the way the land or the soil suffers as a result of human sin uh, and systems of greed and idolatry that treat the material world as nothing but a commodity to be possessed and exploited in the pursuit of personal fulfillment, which is what idolatry is. You take something God made and think, this will make me happy. 
And so um, biblical Sabbath and Jubilee address all of this, which is what, why I love this topic so much, that Sabbath and Jubilee is not just my day to check out. The Sabbath day is about practicing for a future we all share. And so biblical Sabbath and Jubilee uh, are, are concerned for the whole person in the whole neighborhood, and it includes all living beings. And we believe, um, well, scripture teaches us, uh, I was going to say clearly, but I'm not going to put that word when you say it, scripture. Sabbath is an invitation towards delight and shalom for all who are loved by God, all living creatures. So today, um, the fifth week, uh, before we wrap it all up with a uh, Jubilee next week, we're actually going to talk about animals and I've racked my brain, but I don't know if I've ever in my life heard a sermon about God's love for animals and what the, what the implications of the gospel are for our animal kin and what my discipleship as a Christian, uh, how does that, like, do the animals in my world, uh, notice that I've, uh, that I'm a Christian and it's a, a tricky one. The last two weeks as I've been like reading books and listening to podcasts and kind of doing all this research, I've been like, this feels so hard. And so on one hand, I understand why uh, we don't talk about animals, but on the other hand, I found this idea in scripture so beautiful and so hopeful and so profound. So I just want to, um, before I dive into some disturbing facts, I wanted to just give this disclaimer, uh, that talking about animals, um, an animal or industrial animal agriculture or livestock. It's a funny word. Hey, livestock, livestock, music. the animals we eat livestock. Um, it's a it's a hard conversation because I don't know if you've ever reflected on this before, but meat eating um has is can be very political and charged. Do you know what I mean? Um, I know this because I grew up hunting in a hunting family, uh, and for five years of my life I was a weightlifter. Believe it or not, a powerlifter. Um, I, I kind of stopped that like two years ago. Um, and so growing up hunting and and being part of weightlifting community means I've eaten more meat and protein in my life than most humans on earth. Um, I have uh, lived many years in a row on a very high protein diet. I was having like a can of tuna, two chicken breasts, a salmon, a steak, and like a gallon of Greek yogurt every day. Like I am mostly protein. That was like my vision for how everyone should live, like build muscle. Um, and part of it was my own like inner rebellion against like femininity, because here's how it, this, this conversation gets up, gets kind of politicized. I understood growing up that men were carnivores and women were herbivores. That when you're at a restaurant on a nice date with a lady, you get the steak and she gets a salad, right? What kind of a man would order a salad? Um, and so there's a whole like politicized gender ideology caught up in this. I knew that boys um, eat beef and girls eat low fat chicken right? Chicken's an option. And, you know, boys are trying to grow and girls are trying to shrink. So beef, chicken. Um, and the idea of like, you know, you can pull the bacon from my cold dead hands. You know, when doctors are like, bacon's killing you. We're like, yeah, but what's life without bacon? And it's like, raw, like men, bacon, beef. Um, and there was just this idea that um, men who eat tofu or soy, there's like a shameful effeminacy. Like, right. Like this is all around. Like I grew up in that world, right? Um, and, and so I, I just realized writing this, like, oh, this touches a nerve. It's a complex subject. And um, so I just wanted to start by saying, um, please hear me out when I say that um, the desire is never uh, to shame anyone. That's not a pastor's job ever. Uh, never to sort of make anyone feel emasculated or like, I don't know, it gets complicated. I'm not trying to convince anyone to like stop eating animals right now and radically change your diet. The reality is that I love the Bible. I'm a Bible scholar. I've basically given my whole adult life to studying the Bible uh, kind of professionally and Sabbath and Jubilee are my life's work. And the reality is 
there are laws throughout the scriptures uh, that protect animals, that honor, cherish, and revere animals. And so the dream today um, is to simply explore the question of whether or not the gospel have, has implications for how we treat our animal companions. And if the answer is a resounding yes, then perhaps we could um, disciple one another towards a better future uh, that honors each other uh, and resists shame and, and is relevant to the world around us. So um, you can go to the first slide, Glendon, thank you. Um, the, the Sabbath law, which is one of the Ten Commandments, um, and then the Sabbath year and the Jubilee laws throughout the Torah insist on Sabbath rest for livestock. So in Exodus 20, verse 10, I, I put both of the Ten Commandments in there, but I just sort of shortened the Deuteronomy one so you could see it, the little bit of a difference. Uh, so the Sabbath command in Exodus says, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, you should say slave, but nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your town. So everybody gets the rest, or don't call it Sabbath. And then Deuteronomy makes it even more explicit. It says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, dot, dot, dot. I just emphasize the animals here. Nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female, male and female servants may rest as you do. So everybody gets to experience the rest or it's a religion God rejects. And so there's this kind of wild idea that um, animals matter. Uh, the livestock, as we call them, ought to be at ease in the land as we are at ease. And I don't know if you um, know this from when you're reading the Bible or if you've noticed, but um, there was no meat eating in the garden. Uh, that, that was like a post-fall reality where you started eating meat. And in Isaiah 11, uh, there's kind of this uh, hope for a future kingdom where no one will eat meat. Not even the meat-eating animals will eat meat. It says the, the lion will eat grass. And like, I know the biologist in the room is like, but how could that? We believe in weirder things as Christians, yeah? Um, <clears throat> so much of the Old Testament, you know this, think about it, is concerned with food laws. Like the whole Old Testament, food laws, what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. The whole like New Testament, um, like the book of Acts, there's a council about like, what should we, uh, what should we require of these Gentile Christians? Should they get circumcised? The scriptures are clear. And they're like, I think we should just break with the scriptures about circumcision, but they need to like avoid like sexual impurity and animals that have been strangled. Like that was the last, like nowhere in the canon is that taken back. Like, the, like there's a, still a food law binding us in the covenant, which is pretty wild. Like regulated eating or regulated consumption of meat has been a core concern of Christians, Muslims, and Jews since the very beginning of, of all three of those faiths. But uh, the problem that we come up against that we're starting to, I think, wake up to a little bit um, is that a disembodied faith says it doesn't matter what you do with your own body. And then it doesn't matter what you do with other bodies. And uh, it doesn't matter what we do with the earth because only the human soul lasts. Um, but we're kind of waking up to like this memory of incarnation, God with a body, God in the flesh. And, and um, so this embodied faith with this incarnate God of the living at the center insists on our concern for all creaturely life. Uh, a concern for all inhabitants of this green earth we all share. So our prayer is for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So it doesn't go like this way. It goes this way. Um, uh, uh, heaven comes towards us. The gospel is not that we escape this hellhole and, you know, find paradise up there when we can finally, you know, be set free from these fat suits we're stuck in. Like, that's how I thought the gospel was when I was a teenager. 
But the more I study this biblical vision of the lion laying down with the lamb and the new Jerusalem coming towards us and God coming all the way down to be born in a manger as a human, um, we remember that the earth is our home, our eternal delight, and what we do to this world and our body that depends on this world matters. Uh, so I'm going to spend a couple minutes here. I had to, this was stressful. I, I have five stats. I really wanted to have like 20, but it was really depressing. I was um, crying. I don't cry very often, um, but I was definitely choking up with some tears when I was reading about some of this. And uh, I was like, I don't want to obviously like get any, like traumatize anyone. So <clears throat> a few stats, although they're all quite um, staggering. 48 million land animals are slaughtered for food in the USA every day. 2 million per hour, 33,000 per minute. Uh, 50 billion land animals are slaughtered, slaughtered for food per year uh, globally. Um, I know that's like US, so I did research um, Canadian, the Canadian stats because Canada's population is way low, like a 10% of the US. And the reality in Canada is that 841 million land animals are slaughtered for food in Canada. Uh, actually, 841 million is the amount of animals that were slaughtered for food in Canada in the year 2022 which is up from 825 million in 2021 and only 812 in 2020. So we're eating more meat, like it's, it's getting worse. Um, in fact, and this was the stat that really uh, struck me, 96% of all mammalian biomass, I really, I, I was like, what's a better way of saying this? Um, but if you can't understand what that means is like the mass, like the material mass of mammals. So like, all the animals in the world, if you think of every hippopotamus, every mouse, every squirrel, every grizzly bear, whatever your favorite, where's Belle, kangaroo, like all mammals in the world, 96% of them right now live in a cage and haven't seen the light of day. 96% of all mammalian biomass, oh, sorry, is human or industrial animal agriculture. So only 4% of mammal life on planet Earth is wild. 90% of the ocean's fish was fished in the 20th century. And then, um, so I was like, okay, I got two stats about chickens and one about cows, because they get at the worst. I didn't put the pig one in, because that was depressing. Okay, so I have chickens. Uh, I think if some of you have chickens, bonus, lots of people have chickens. Um, and the first time I went to buy chicken feed at a farm store, I immediately felt like a city person. I was like, <laughs> I need to buy chicken food. And the lady was like, what kind? I was like, oh boy, one lays blue eggs, one lays white eggs. I think they're, and she's like, fryer or layer? And I was like, fryer or layer? She's like, eggs or meat? I was like, eggs, layers. So there's layers and fryers. Fryers is the, the chicken we eat. Layer, we eat their eggs, okay? So a fryer chicken, you need a fryer chicken to get super big because we charge by the weight, right? So um, fryer chickens live only 35 days. So from the time the egg hatches until they're in the slaughterhouse, 35 days. And uh, this is what uh, choked me up in the coffee shop. <clears throat> the only time in a fryer chicken's life that they will ever see a blue sky or feel the breeze in their feathers is during the 90-second move from the dark prison where they live their 35 days to the slaughterhouse on the other side of the uh, factory. Uh, the, the, these fryer chickens are kept in, in dark rooms in these dark cages, and there's about 60 per cage, and they can't move or walk or spread their wings ever. And because of the terror that their systems are constantly experiencing, they can be really aggressive. So their beaks are removed uh, from hatch. Um, okay. There are 38 million layer chickens, so eggs, we're on eggs now, uh, exploited for eggs per year. 
that's in the US, 380 million layer chickens are exploited for eggs. So in natural habitats, egg laying chickens will molt once a year. I don't know if you've ever seen a chicken molt. If you know about chickens, um, it really freaked me out the first times our chickens molted because I thought um, one of them was sick because like her feathers are falling out and she just looks like this like cross between a dinosaur and a chicken and they don't lay eggs. And I'm like, oh my gosh, our chicken's sick. And this went on for like eight weeks. And I was like, oh no. And I'm like Googling it. And they're like, your chicken is molting. A healthy chicken will molt once a year. Molting will take like six weeks. And then after that, they're really productive egg layers for a while. They're super productive. So in the chicken um, layer industry, they actually do a forced molt. Uh, and they'll do this like every three months where uh, they deny the chicken food and water for two weeks, which like forces them to be in that molt stress. Uh, and then their egg production is really productive. And they say that like up to 50% of chickens die of uh, from that deprivation. Um, Nine million cows are exploited for milk every year. Uh, a, a milk cow will give 2,000 gallons of milk per year. Um, and if you've ever uh, had the privilege of having a baby, uh, your body doesn't make milk all the time. It makes milk like after you uh, have a little baby. And as long as that baby keeps needing milk, um, ideally your body would keep making milk. But so milk cows are actually artificially inseminated to just stay pregnant uh, so that they keep making milk all the time, no matter what. And as soon as their babies are born, their babies are taken. Uh, and then they're just hooked up to that machine to give milk all the time. Um, they only live to be about three years old or four years old. And then the milk cows whose, whose systems have just been depleted uh, are sent to slaughter. And that's where we get our leather from. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I was kind of struck by that. And then I realized these are like um, all these like female animals, um, like male uh, chicks are just disposed of once they're hatched because roosters don't get fat enough and they don't lay eggs and uh, male cows also don't get fat enough. So, you know, you need a few for like mating, but otherwise the male animals are just useless. And so they're just thrown away. So essentially, um, if you think about that, the animal, uh, the industrial animal eating industry is state sanctioned terror, is torture. Uh, I have, uh, I, I haven't, I don't have any stats here about on um, like animal testing. Like that's a whole other kind of industry, like not eating meat, but testing. Um, and I won't, I won't go into it, but I just, I was listening to this um, podcast by uh, an animal, a Christian animal ethicist. And he said, one of the sort of criticisms he gets a lot when he's presenting on animals is people are like, isn't this kind of a boutique concern when there are so many human rights violations in the world? Like, shouldn't we care about the humans first before we worry about the chickens? And then he had this brilliant answer and he's like, you can't actually fix one without addressing the other. The solution and the problem to both are, are completely, uh, interrelated. So for example, um, COVID-19, where did that virus come from? That virus came into existence in industrial farming agriculture, these terrorized, traumatized animals being fed kind of bulk antibiotics. So you get this super antibiotic virus exists, comes from that environment, we get COVID. Uh, and then interestingly, once humans started getting COVID, uh, we immediately started doing testing on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of animals, uh, testing scientific experiments in order to create the vaccine and create a solution to this problem. Uh, and interestingly, um, slaughterhouse workers were considered essential workers during COVID. So they were denied time off, even though apparently uh, in the Western world, uh, being a slaughterhouse worker is the most dangerous work environment in the West, highest risk. Um, and the vast majority of slaughterhouse workers, so I think of like Cargill, uh, just south of Calgary here, um, the vast majority of them are vulnerable people of color. So where animals are being abused, humans are being abused. 
And so if anyone ever says, we must first address human rights issues before we can care about animals, uh, you, you, you can safely assure them that the problem and the solution to both are related. Where humans are mistreated, animals are mistreated. And where humans and animals are mistreated, the land is being exploited. And all of this, all of this is idolatry. Um, because to treat any part of this earth that God made as an object to be exploited and abused is to worship creation, not the creator, as the source of our delight. So instead of setting our sights on the God of the living, we've looked to something in uh, this created realm as a source of our own fulfillment and personal joy, and so we can exploit it. Uh, and so it, all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I want to go back to the Old Testament and pay attention to these food laws. Um, because food laws are at the heart of the Old Testament. Um, in fact, the first five books of the Old Testament is called the, the Pentateuch or the Torah. And the book of Leviticus is in the very center of the Torah. And the chapter that's in the center of the Torah is a food law chapter. Uh, the life of the people of Yahweh is shaped by regulated eating. So they ate meat. You know this in, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the ancient Israelite world, they ate meat. Um, it's not about like eating meat's a sin. Uh, but interestingly, um, I don't know, when was the last time you like had a very heartfelt spiritual devotional time through the book of Leviticus? I'm teaching Pentateuch in the fall though, and I think it is actually a profound exercise because you might've never known this before. And I never heard a sermon about this until like I read a Walter Brueggemann book. I was like, what? They never ate meat in ancient Israel without ceremony. So um, also they never ate meat or they never ate any animals that they didn't know and love. So this is a kind of a ridiculous question and I know the answer, but would you eat your pet? You couldn't do it, could you? I have like five backyard chickens and I could never eat them. They hatched in a little incubator in Ember's bedroom. They hatched on Palm Sunday. There's one named Hosanna. And they're like, have little personalities. And I know which eggs are whose. And when one of them um, gets like lost by a fox, the other ones look for their friend. Like they have, and so I never could. So like sometimes um, roosters hatch and it's like, oh, we can't legally have roosters in bonus because they're noisy. I mean, we can't legally, I think, have any of them, but the roosters give it away. They're like snitches. So we have to kind of, get the roosters out of there and people are like, oh, so then do you just eat the roosters? And when we first had chicks, it was like, oh yeah, totally. And I was like, no, I can't. Um, the foxes can, but I cannot. So I know that um, eating, eating your pet is just, it's impossible. There's no way. Um, I know that like these little chickens feel pain and they feel joy and delight and I just couldn't do it. And so upon studying kind of meat eating in the ancient world and, and these kind of food eating laws, I learned that, um, did you know that in ancient Israel, you lived in close proximity to your animals? Animals were rarely bred for uh, distance transport, like traveling um, or sale. Um, and the slaughtered animal in any meal had been raised in or near the home of the people eating it. You never ate an animal whose name you didn't know. Um, so like literally um, in ancient Israel, they didn't have like a big barn out there and then the house here. Um, the animals lived in the house with you. There's like a bottom floor. And in the wintertime, the little animals would sometimes even sleep like near where you slept to keep them warm. Um, and, and like the average Israelite would maybe have three, four, five, if you were wealthier, maybe 20, 25 animals. Uh, so you know all their names. You remember how they were born. You know their personalities. Um, they grow up as a part of your family and you know them. You know they feel pain and delight. And uh, that's where your meat comes from. 
So, and if you don't believe me, okay, remember that story in Second Samuel where the Lord sends Nathan to rebuke David and David tells the parable of the little ewe lamb? Remember it? It goes like this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. This parable is normalizing. Like, this is how close the average person, like the super uber rich king. Okay. Yeah, they got a lot. They like, but the average person is like, this little ewe lamb sleeps in my arms. Um, it was like a daughter to him, Nathan says. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come in. Now, we know this story is disturbing because even the rich, powerful David, it says, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. Like, you can't just take a little lamb. He must pay for that lamb four times because he did such a thing and had no pity. And that's the famous line where Nathan says, you are the man. Like, there's this sense of like, well, just slaughtering an animal is not something you just do irreverently. So also, this might blow your mind. You did not eat meat every day in ancient Israel unless you were royalty, and that's actually condemned throughout the prophets. You ate meat only a few times a year. The only time you ate meat in ancient Israel was at one of the major festivals, at a tribal meeting, or at a very important celebration like a wedding, or during the visit of a very important guest, like an international guest, not like your neighbor, like a big guest. So you might eat meat five or six times a year. Uh, and this is what the whole sacrificial system was about, actually. Um, there's no meat market in ancient Israel. There's no grocery store to go buy meat. There's actually no person in society who's a butcher. That didn't exist. Guess who butchered all the meat? The priest at the temple. That's your job as a priest. Um, so uh, the, the thing about eat, eating meat in ancient Israel is you would bring your own lamb to the tabernacle and then there would be a whole ceremony before the animal is killed. And then its blood would be dashed against the altar to kind of cleanse you or atone for sin of you and the community. And then you would prepare and eat the animal there at the tabernacle or nearby uh, with the priest and a portion of the animal, not all of it, a portion of it would be burned on the altar as if to say, God is eating this meal with us. And so every time a morsel of meat was consumed uh, by an ancient Israelite, the eater knew and loved the animal that was being eaten and felt the weight of grief and gratitude. Now, to get a little more shocking, the book of Leviticus actually prohibits the killing of any edible animal outside of this ceremony. Uh, there's a slide next. In Psalm 50, verse 10, it says, uh, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills... I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. I think of the like, I don't know, 400,000 animals that have been slaughtered since I started speaking 10 minutes ago. God knew every single one of them. He knew every hair and scale. He knew them all. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, aren't two sparrows sold for a small coin? But not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing about it already. And so suddenly you get to the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus 17, it says... Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, 
that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. It's a murder charge. If you kill an animal outside of ceremony, it's a murder charge in, in the book of Leviticus. That's a very serious one. So the ceremony is like this. Um, uh, you bring your lamb who you know and love and raise yourself and you place your hand on the head of the animal in front of the priest. And then there's a prayer that said, um, a prayer that the animal would be accepted in your place. So you become the animal, the animal becomes you. And then the animal is killed and eaten as a sacred meal. And if you think about it, they don't have fridges or freezers or ways to preserve meat in the ancient, you know, Israel. And so the animal that you killed in that ceremony had to be eaten that day, all of it, every single part of it. And if your family's not big enough to eat an entire lamb or maybe like a, a cow, then you invite all of your neighbors. In Luke 14, Jesus goes off on a parable and he's like, and when you invite your neighbors, don't just invite your rich friends who are going to invite you to their ceremonial meat meal next, you know, invite everybody to the sacred meal. And so um, you stand before God with your lamb and the reality is one of you must die. Why should it be the lamb and not you? There's a moment. God takes this very seriously. God does not accept offerings made in vain or irreverence. You stand before God and acknowledge that this animal is dying so that I might live and my neighbors might live. And before the animal is slaughtered, there's a confession of sin and sorrow, a confession of human weakness and dependence, an acknowledgement that sin and idolatry is death-dealing and serious. And this entire transaction is meant to draw humility and kindness from the eater. In fact, throughout the prophets, remember, God says, I don't want any more of your animal sacrifices. I want you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. So don't just come sacrifice animals because you want to keep eating meat. The idea is like a humble recognition that where you eat meat, something died. Um, so this is <laughs> the heart of Christianity uh, is that Jesus is the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who dies in our place. And now, every time we gather, we eat the sacred meal together until all is consumed, exactly as it would have happened in the tabernacle or the temple. So God at this sacred meal, just like in the tabernacle and the temple, God is the host. We show up as the guest. Uh, and yet the meal is also God. And the meal is also us because God stands in for us and takes our place and becomes the meal. And then we consume the lamb of God together. And it's really fascinating because some Christians um, have said in a very sort of problematic, anti-Semitic way that, um, well, you know, we don't have food laws anymore. The Jews have food laws, but we don't have food laws anymore. We get to eat what we want. Jews can't eat bacon, but we can. So praise Jesus. And then it's kind of conversation over. And I'm struck by this uh, with great sorrow this week in, in going over this, these texts because um, that's not it. Uh, Jesus died not just to release humanity from the weight of sin. But also Jesus died as the final sacrificial lamb. So how do you eat meat now? There's no more animal sacrifice. This is a huge problem in the book of Romans and the New Testament. They're like, well, the only way to get meat now is to go to another religion's temple and get their meat. And they're like, oh, are we allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And some Christians were like, no. This, there, there, that's the book of Romans. Now, like we solved it. Okay. Um, the, the wild thing is, um, Paul says, like, well, the animal sacrifice that we eat is the lamb of God. And every time we gather, we eat it. And we eat it acknowledging the weight of grief and gratitude. And that word is Eucharist. Um, Eucharist. 
food laws in the Bible aren't designed to be like, this meat tastes gross, this meat is good, this meat will make you fat, and this meat is, you know, lean, and this meat is unclean. Like I had, I grew up hearing all sorts of theories about why they couldn't eat pork, and it was like bacteria or something like that. But the more you, we study the food laws, um, there's not like entire consensus in the scholarly community, but it seems more likely to say, you're not allowed to hurt these animals. Don't touch these ones. Uh, but these ones, because you raise them and you love them and you know them and you care about them. Okay. Oh, I don't want to eat one of the animals I've raised and I know, and I love, I want to go get that rock badger out there. You know, like there's that sense of like, I don't want to eat an animal I love. But that's the whole point of the law. Um, five times a year in ceremony, uh, you can eat the animals that you have raised. And you must not kill the disabled and wounded animals that you do not love because God loves them. You will offer the animals you love the most and respect the most so that you can fully feel the weight of the transaction. If you love this animal and this animal loves you, then this meal will be holy and God will be present at the table. So perhaps there is one more thought. Is there, what's the next slide? I'm curious if I missed one. Oh no, that's great. Okay, um, That's fine. Um, so I think like I could potentially end the sermon there and be like, so isn't that profound that when we eat, we should care more for animals. We should worry more for animals. And maybe when we eat meat, we should take a moment and be like, I wonder where this came from. Hmm. I wonder what this animal's life was like. And I wonder how this animal's life would be different if I was a, you know, I think there's more to it because actually, if you zoom out, even outside of Leviticus and the food laws, we realize um, that it's not just about showing concern for animals and extending a little more charity and maybe being a little less wasteful. When I zoom out, I see that animals are not made by God um, just to be used by us. Throughout scripture, we're taught that animals are our teachers and our guides. In fact, is God is is not God presented in scripture? Um, as like uh, compared to animals far more than humans. Throughout scripture, uh, we're told that the Holy Spirit is a dove. Uh, God in Deuteronomy is uh, presented as an eagle. God in uh, Hosea is presented as a mother bear. God is the good shepherd. The incarnate God was born in a manger where animals are usually kept, you know, eating. And one of the ones that blew my mind was the seraphim at the altar the seraphim and the cherubim. These are not humans with wings, speaking to humans about the human God, who's the God of the humans. The winged seraphim and cherubim at the altar have the face of a lion, an eagle, an ox. And these are e like eternal holy beings with six wings crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so at the heart of the biblical story is um, a God of the living, not just a God of humans a God who is presented as an animal or a bird or um, a, a lover of animals like a shepherd or a fisherman. Um, and so we have to slow down and remember that animals are not just uh, there for us to use, but they're also there are companions. And at the heart of the Old Testament, and I would say um, the New Testament as well, is this promise, a promise. You can go to the next slide, um, that God will bring us into a land that is flowing with milk and honey which means the land will be filled with happy animals who are nursing their young. And it will be filled with flowers and pollinators and bees, and there will be honey. And this land will be without war or famine or exploitation. It'll be a land where blood is not shed, a land where we imagine ourselves as our brother's keeper. 
a land where we see ourselves as creatures of our creator, and we honor our God as the God of the living, the God of the future, the God of the furred and four-footed, the winged and the scaled, the invertebrate, the nocturnal, the amphibian, and the unseen multitude. At the heart of our gospel hope is this idea that God loves us so much that in fact he loved the whole earth so much that he came himself as a lamb to die the final death and rise to the beginning of all things being made new. Thank you.